0: It's a great pleasure to welcome today our speaker, Michael Pregent, who is a former Army Intelligence Officer with more than 28 years of experience working security, terrorism, counterinsurgency, and policy issues in the Middle East, North Africa, and Southwest Asia. He served in Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He served as a liaison officer in Egypt during the 2000 Intifada and as a counter-insurgency intelligence officer at CENTCOM in 2001 and a company commander in Afghanistan in 2002. He spent considerable time working malign Iranian influence in Iraq as an advisor to Iraq's security intelligence apparatus including as an embedded advisor in the commander-in-chief office in uh, Prime Minister Al-Maliki's office. He also served as an embedded advisor with Peshmerga in Mosul, 2005-2006. Remember Mosul? He's worked as a civilian for DIA and done many other things regarding Iranian influence in Iraq. Uh, he served as a violent extremism and foreign fighter analyst at CENTCOM from 2011 to 2013. Please join me in welcoming Michael Friedman as he addresses this enigmatic title, "How Iran Fuels ISIS."
1: Thanks for being here tonight. I hope everybody can hear me, okay? Yes. I kind of accidentally fell into this this uh, arena of being a uh, an accidental expert on. Hawaiian, Iranian influence in Iraq, and then being able to, being, having the luxury of sitting in a room when really bad decisions were being made, and, and not being able to put my hand up because I didn't have the rank or didn't have the right or the portfolio to be able to say something uh, until now, Sorry. until the last couple of years. So, um, I learned Arabic at the age of 18, uh, found myself in the desert Storm. Uh, in a position where we always believe your leaders and always believe they have the right, the right goal, the right commander's intent, and just listening to some of you before you know we started this event, I know most of you are a former trained, military. Based on what I heard, and as a junior enlisted soldier, you know you always trust your leadership. Now, when you become an NCO, you start to question your leadership. And when you become an officer, you realize that if you don't toe the line, you're not going to go very far. So you're you're questioning your leadership again. So I've had the luxury of never, ever being afraid of being fired from any job. I've always been at the company or battalion level as a military guy. And as an intelligence uh, advisor or subject matter expert for the Defense Intelligence Agency on the Iraqi Security Forces, I always uh, found myself in the room Listening to generals and really smart people talk about things, and um, the one thing we were very concerned about in 2007 was the growing influence of a, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Does everybody know here know who the Iranian Revolutionary Guard is? Oh yeah. I wish I wish uh, Congress would do the same thing here too. I wish they would be able to nod their head in unison as well as well as the Senate. Uh, I had the the opportunity and the luxury and the honor. To be asked to be asked if I would start an organization. The organization we started in in August was um, Veterans Against the Iran Deal. Uh, I was the executive director, and we were able to reach back and get experts going back 36 years who knew the Iranian regime very well. We were able to tell congressmen and women and, and senators how bad this Iran deal was because it simply was going to give the Revolutionary Guard more power. We didn't focus on the nuclear part of the Iran deal. We focused on the non-nuclear concessions and how uh, basically coming to a deal where you actually reward the Revolutionary Guard and its Quds Force, as well as the besiege, would actually have consequences and actually would actually keep the moderating event from happening in Iran. This administration was hoping to secure with this deal. Uh, it actually emboldened them. It's empowered them, and we've uh, we've seen actions by Iran since implementation day in the Iran deal that show that Iran believes it can do whatever it wants over the next nine months and get away with it without concern, knowing that this White House and its guarantor and Putin will come to its defects with legal ease, with technicalities, and you know, missile launches aren't technically a violation of the Iran deal even though they're clearly violations of the U.N. Security Council resolutions, which make up the backbone of Iran deal. Yeah. So we look at those things. So getting back to how Iran feels ISIS, I'm going to take you back to 2008. I hope you're okay with that, because this started before President Obama took office. He talked about it during the debates with Hillary Clinton that he would reach out to Iran. He would sit down with this regime and talk. Well, Khomeini was listening. The Supreme Leader was listening and Jay Solomon, a friend of mine who writes with the Wall Street Journal wrote a piece about the secret communications between President Obama and the Supreme Leader. And the Supreme Leader asked him for a gesture. Show me something. Show me you're serious about working with us. Well, I didn't know it at the time, but I was actually sitting in a room where those, those um, overtures were being carried out. I was part of an organization called the Four Strategic Engagement Cell, and our job was to meet with reconcilables and irreconcilables, correction, to meet with bad guys and determine whether or not they were reconcilable or irreconcilable. If they were irreconcilable, we'd give them to the door kickers, and I heard a couple of door kickers out there uh, drinking wine a little while ago. <laughs> and uh, we give it to the door kickers and they go on the targeting list, but those that were reconcilable. Uh, They became the leaders of the Sons of Iraq. They became the leaders of the Awakening. They became the Shia nationalists that broke away from Shia militia groups and gave Iraq space to operate during the surge. I was in Iraq from 2005 to 2010 for at least six months of each year and I saw security degradation and then I saw the increase in security when the surge actually started taking hold. And in 2008, there's a there's a photo of President Obama flying with General Petraeus in a Black Hawk, overlooking the battlefield. General Petraeus is telling him about the successes of the surge, and President Obama says, "I, that's great. We're still out of here." That conversation wasn't limited to the to the confines of that Black Hawk. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard was listening. A supreme leader in Iran was listening, and we started seeing an increase in Iranian influence with, it, with the government of Iraq. They had already done their intimidation campaign of exterminating Iraqi pilots regardless of religion. So they'd go after Christians, they'd go after Shia and Sunni pilots because Iran's goal in Iraq was to ensure that Iraq would never be a threat to Iran again. So we would already seen that part of the surge, but during the surge we were having this, this success. McCain had already pretty much, He was going to lose the election. This is prior to the election, but President-elect Obama uh, was already, or he was already forecasted to win the election when he was saying these things. He was turning the battlefield. But when he actually secured the status of incoming president in November of 2008, uh, we saw things change. And we started seeing an emboldened Iran pressuring, I wouldn't even say pressuring, working with a like-minded Maliki government in Baghdad to dismantle what we set in place. A a government that brought in Kurds, that brought in Sunnis, that brought in Christians. And we're working together, but they were working together because we ensured that they did. We were the third party guarantor in Iraq. No reconciliation, uh, anybody familiar with the term DDR? Demobilize, disarm and and reconcile, reintegrate. That doesn't happen unless there's a third party guarantor to ensure that's happening. We were the third party guarantor at that time. We're ensuring that Sunnis weren't being targeted by their government. We're ensuring that that, uh, Kurds and Sunni affected commanders were not being replaced and removed on bogus intelligence uh, or terrorism charges and accountability and justice law charges, meaning that if your third cousin was a Ba'athist, you can't have a job either because of that that linkage. That's how bad it was. So we started seeing a concerted effort by the Maliki government emboldened by a, we're out of here, you guys, we're done, we're moving out, Iran, it's yours. In 2008, we started seeing the release of of, of individuals that never should have been released. These are the Shia militia leaders, (coughs) Qasem Soleimani and the Quds Force, ordered to kidnap uh, five Americans, the Karbala Five. I don't know if you're familiar with the Karbala Five, but in 2007, five American advisors uh, were killed by an IRGC-driven operation. The design was to kidnap Americans and trade them for four IRGC operatives that were captured in Erbil. It was a trade. It was an operation that went wrong. One of the NCOs that died on the objective died because he, he don't want a grenade. He received the Silver Star for that action. Uh, the other four were, were abducted. They were put in the back of a truck. And they took the wrong route. We were closing in on them, and before we were able to get to them, they executed the four Americans in the back of the car. So these were four Americans. The first time this had happened, zip tied in the back of the car, executed, you know, with AK-47s. And we found the computer linking it directly to Custom Somawani, Case Ghazali, Leith Kazali, and Lebanese advisor to Assad Aho Hawk Doc Duke. And we, we, when I say we, joint, joint uh, our JSOC went after these guys and caught them. And there was, there was an immediate issue with Tehran. You can't, you can't capture these guys. These are our guys Case Gazelle, Lith Gazali, and Doc Duke. And we held them. Prime Minister Maliki was getting so much pressure by Iran to release these three individuals that had killed Americans to the point where General Petraeus actually had to show Prime Minister Maliki the computer. That, that actually had the intelligence on it, linking it directly to custom solo money and his customers. To the point where said, Okay, I get it. And we kept them in prison. And it was something finally it showed Iraq that despite your affiliations with Tehran, despite your affiliations and status with an Iraqi Shia militia, uh, you would actually be held accountable for what you did. So the rule of law looked like it was taking shape. And the outgoing Bush administration said that if Case and Leif Kazali, and Doc Duke were ever released, it would, be, it would be such a such a mark on the whole war effort that, that some said they would resign their positions if they ever were released. In 2009, Leif Kazali was released, in 2010 Case Kazali was released, and in 2012 Doc Duke was released. And these weren't quiet releases. These were parades in Baghdad, Shia areas where the Sunni population and the Kurdish population and the Shia nationalists looked at this and said, it's going to start to unravel. In 2008, 2009, and 2010 when these things were happening. Kind of and think about the message that that sent to Americans. Uh, a lot of Americans don't know about the Karbala but those of us that work in know about it. Uh, the families of those five Americans know about it. And three Shia militia commanders that currently lead the Iraqi forces today uh, were released because it was an overture towards Tehran that this president was willing to work with that. I, 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 have no, I have no problem saying that. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know this was linked to securing the Iran deal. I thought we were just making a really bad mistake. and we had a notebook where we were at. And we had, we were the ones actually interviewing these guys in prison, at Crocker. And, uh, you know, our, our, one of our generals said, you know, this guy is so charismatic, he can make anybody believe that, that, that they should just follow his will, and he was one of the guys who agreed to release something. And when he said that in a room, I said, yeah, he sure, he sure can win people over, can't he? And he didn't get that I was talking about him, I'm not going to mention his name, but But he knows, he knows knows that he made a mistake. Because Case Ghazali promised him, if he got released, that he would not go back to Tehran and that he would be available to us and he would work on reconciliation. He would stop the Shia militias, he would disarm, disband, and reintegrate Shia militias into the security forces and into the civilian workforce. Within 24 hours, he was in Iran. Uh, one of the other individuals, when he was actually being—you seen Bridge of Spies? Anybody in here? Yeah. There, was, there was a Bridge of Spies moment when one other gentleman was released, and uh, as 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 our guys released him, uh, he had a cell phone. They he promised he'd keep it, be attached. He turned around, he looked at them, and he threw the cell phone in the river, and walked across the river into the arms of the Iranians. And you know, when you see those things, you know everybody when they go to the Middle they want to be the ones of Arabia. And they want to be the American. If I could just get in the room with a guy for two hours, I could change his mind. And you'd be surprised how many people actually believe that. Um, I guess a lot of people call me paranoid, or you know, a, a person who has a hard time trusting people. But I think it serves me well. I go into a room already believing somebody's going to lie to me, <laughs> so that I can at least have that. Somebody needs to be in that room thinking somebody's going to lie to you, because um, you know, I've had the opportunity to with General Traya on on some of these things. I and mean, you read the bio. Um, I was allowed into the Prime Minister Maliki's office of the commander in chief because they said, Thank God we got this excuse my language, dumbass text and it can't speak Arabic. <laughs> and to be part of this group, not knowing that I understood every word they said. But I did the appreciate Asalam alaikum kidalha, stuff that was just the Texas way for saying, How's it going? And um and said, Stay in there, if they think you're passing, be passive. Just tell us what they're doing and they were targeting every potential Sunni um, charismatic leader and every Sunni male that wanted to play a productive role in Iran. And they were simply labeled them with the charge of terrorism. So, if you look at these actions, and in the title this, How Iran Fuels ISIS. What we mean by that, what I mean by that, we wrote a piece at the, the Hudson Institute on how to curb Iranian influence and, and defeat ISIS and how not to, Uh, Part of that was, you know, you have a disenfranchised Sunni population in Iraq that believes that the government doesn't trust them and believes they're simply collaborators and tacit supporters of Al-Qaeda. And that was even before ISIS. So in 2008, you have to remember, there were 90,000 Sunnis in the security apparatus on American payrolls. They had taken the U.S. casualty rate down to such a low percentage. And that we were able to go into towns that we never were able to go in before, without body armor, without helmets, not worried about being shot at because we had one peace in these earnings. Um, there were 56 attacks daily in Baghdad in 2006. After the surge, there were 10 attacks nationwide a week, mm-hmm. and they weren't even affected. So we had the metrics. We had everything working. We had leverage with the Kurds, leverage with the Sunnis, leverage with Iraqi nationalists who make up all sects. And then we had leverage, because we had 160,000 guys there we to make sure that he upheld the rule of law. He was still skirting but we would call out without help. And um, I got a chance to brief John Petraeus one time about Maliki skirting these things. And he said, well, that's not true. I had dinner with him last night. I <laughs> said, well, sir, that's what he said after the dinner. I was able to provide him with something that he had said after the dinner. They kind of, you know, I could see it. He said in that briefing, he said, hey, listen, if you give me a brief and I say, got it, got it, got it, good, that's not a good brief. I want you, I want you to push back. And he pointed at me, he <laughs> not too much. And this is before I got a chance to drop the uh, all the way, sir, which is, a, I think you said in the 82nd Airborne Division, it says, hey, sir, I've jumped out of airplanes with you. Or H-, minus meaning I used to be in the same thing you were in. I didn't get a chance to say that, so he gave me a couple shotgun blasts in the chest during that break, but it actually set me up to be uh, part of the Relying Iranian Influence Team, Start looking at these things. And what you saw in 2008, 9, 10, 11, and 12 was the complete dismantling of a 90,000 strong Sunni security force that was responsible for decimating Al-Qaeda, responsible for securing Al-Ambar, which was the worst province in Iraq at the time. Uh, securing Minwa, Diala, Saladin, and, and Western Bank, and Northern Bank. You had peace, and you had Sunnis running for political office in Maliki. Actually, convinced them that they could be part of his coalition. He would give them positions if they formed part of his bloc in 2010. By 2013, every effective Kurdish commander, with the exception of two staff officers. Every effective Sunni intelligence officer and commander, not married into the Maliki family or affiliated with the Maliki tribe, was purged from the Iraqi security forces. So you had 30,000 Sunnis and Kurds purged from the two divisions that fell to ISIS in Mosul and Afar in 2013. So when people say that the Iraqi army disintegrated, that wasn't the Iraqi army that we trained. That was the Iraqi army Maliki had replaced with loyalists and Shia party officials. And uh, I know that I know that as a fact because the guy in charge of Mosul was a guy who was uh, part of the Wolf Brigade in 2005. It was an infamous Shia militia-run organization that was infamous for torturing and killing Sunnis and political opponents directly tied to Iran and uh, we basically met with him and ensured that he would never get a position again. And in 2013, he was responsible for Mosul's security, and uh, that's, that's what we're dealing with. So, Iran, how does Iran fuel ISIS? Well, the Sunnis and the Kurds don't trust the government because they believe it's an Iranian puppet. So ISIS moved into to Mosul in 2014. And no force to retake Mosul has been built yet. Uh, I've talked to Colonel Steve Warren. Uh, I've called, called him out a couple of things. I understand his position as spokesperson for Operation Inherent Resolve. I understand his, his role is to put out positive, good, good messages. Well, the truth is, you can't take Mosul back with Shia militias. And when I just visited uh, Kurdistan in November and met with my former Peshmerga general, He said, you can't take it back with Kashmir, either. We need to bring back the 30,000 Sunnis that used to be in the Iraqi security forces, that we need to reactivate a portion of the former Sons of Iran. uh, Excuse me, Sons of Iran. Iran. (laughs) I call the Shia militia Sons of Iran. I wrote an op-ed on that. And uh, and, um, to bring those people back. But Prime Minister Abadi doesn't have the power to do that. I don't know if any of you remember when Secretary... uh, Ash Carter was presenting a special operations package and an Apache an aircraft <coughs> to the government. and He said no. And two prominent Shia militias, both backed by Iran, Assad Ahul Haq and Qatahu Ismaila, said that if any additional American forces came in, they would simply tell their Shia militias that are being trained by the US, being provided close air support by the US to attack US personnel. Hmm. And so Prime Minister of Iran, he said no to this thing. We secretly got it in there by pushing it up to the Kurdistan. Because the Kurds are always happy to, to take these things. So if you if you hear what and I interviewed Sunni military generals at refugee camps and you, <coughs> <excuse me>. <coughs> <coughs> in Iraq. <coughs> uh, former sons of Iraq and former military commanders. Uh, they used to be in the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. Excuse me. I feel like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, at least I to Excuse They say that she's been, been a force, you want. anyway. So I interviewed them, and and they basically said, "Listen, our government doesn't trust us. Uh, we we aren't allowed back in the military. I had to leave Mosul because ISIS will attack the if a former Iraqi security." Force member, and uh, and when I asked to speak to refugees, I said, "How many people? I want to speak to people that think that blame the U.S. for this." And I got got some people in the room. I did this in Turkey as well. I visited a refugee camp in Turkey with uh, Syrian refugees. I said, "How many of you blame the U.S. for this?" And they all raised their hands. I said, "How many of you think the U.S. should do more?" And they all raised their hands. Um, and I said, "What's your biggest biggest uh, concern?" And you hear from the administration that the, the greatest recruiting tool for ISIS is Gitmo. Gitmo is the greatest recruiting <laughs> tool for ISIS. The, great, the greatest recruiting tool for ISIS is the U.S. tilt towards Iraq, because what that has done is it's fractured Iraq. It's left part of it's left the northern part of Iraq to the mercy of ISIS, and the Kurds to the mercy of U.S. support. It's fractured Syria. It's left. Twenty million Sunnis of the Northern Middle East, if you combine Syria and Iraq prior to the, the exit of the refugees, it's left them without a government they trust and it's left them without a guarantor in the West. Because when they look to the West, they don't understand why we're not doing war. And if you look at what's happened in Iraq, there's no doubt Baghdad is beholden to Iraq if you look to Syria, there's no doubt Damascus is the only to Iran and now Moscow. And all of this was just to secure this this agreement with Iran that was supposed to moderate this regime. And, and I, I get it. I get the contrarian you know, thinking when you get into the White House. But simply doing the opposite of what George Bush would do is not a strategy. It just, it's just not, it's not working. And, you know, you can get smart people in a room say, so who thinks like us in the Middle East? And some smart guy, and we've all met them, they've never been in the military, they have PhDs, and really I disrespect anybody here with a PhD, but they they come up with these, these things like, well, Iran feels the same way we do about Sunni extremists <laughs> they, they do, don't they, and Mr. President, they feel the same way about Israel? they? Damn. You know. um, so it's a way, you know, the president simply asked his round um, how do we keep the U.S. from continually evolving itself in these wars? Do you find somebody else to do it? And there's two courses of action that have both fueled uh, terrorist groups, Sunni-insurgent groups, sunni disturbed insurgent groups. Um, and it's been this tilt towards Iran where Iran has influence and this tilt towards the Muslim brotherhood where Iran does not have influence. And you've seen this. Time and time again, with with Egypt, and how the Muslim Brotherhood to tried to hijack the, the peaceful initial protest in Syria, prior to Jamal al nusra coming in, prior to the Islamic State of Iraq becoming the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Sham or Daesh or ISIL, whatever you want to call it, and uh, and these are, these are other groups, and you see it because of U.S. disengagement, and our adversaries are. Are strong, strong, patient chess players. Now, when they see a weak adversary, they fill the void. And this tilt has allowed Iran to further entrench. In 2010, I just met with um, two weeks ago. I just met with the vice president of Iraq, Yanalawi. He won the election in 2010. You wouldn't know it because Prime Minister Maliki took it from him by using the accountability and justice law and the terrorism law to punish and intimidate um, would-be supporters of the Adelawi, and also use martial law to ensure that he used the Al-Qaeda threat to stay in power he declared martial law, he had his units intimidate and punish Sunni opposition leaders, he started replacing people he used money in the tribal support councils in Iraq funded by Iran to buy the election in 2010. And in 2014, he tried to do it again. I don't know if you remember that. When ISIS came in, Maliki had just recently won an election. People were pressuring him to step down because we thought a body would be able to do something. Uh, and a body, of course, the weaker you are in a country and the less connected you are to these militias, the more influenced by them you are. Because you don't have the ability to push back, because the rule of law doesn't exist you have to have these affiliations to make things happen so Maliki of 2005 was a compromised candidate that was easily influenced by Shia les a body is much like Maliki of 2005 uh, he still hasn't grown into the role and we conflate a an English accent with a pragmatic individual who's going to somehow <coughs> follow our strategic line of thinking in the region and um, I, for one, do not <laughs> um, complete the British acts on the intelligence. So, unless you're intelligent, of course. You know, the thing about Yel I spent a lot of time in London as well. Um, he is speaking to regional allies in the Middle East and North Africa, and they're all asking the same question what the hell is the U.S. doing, tilting towards Iran? Why are they going? You saw President Obama's article in the Atlantic. Um, he basically said, our soon regional allies are free, free, free riders. Um, they're not doing a lot. And it actually defended Iran. And if you look at just these events, so 2008, helicopter ride with General Petraeus, 2009, the release of Shia militia members that never should have been released and the blood of Americans on their hands. All this signs for this administration. In 2010, when Yadalami won the election, um, some of these guys went into general reality and said, hey, how come you can't just put some power? You've got 160,000 guys here. And he told us in a group that we uh, we advised on the election what Maliki could do. And, and nobody thought Maliki was going to be able to hold on to that election in 2010. Nobody did. I was charged with being the red team guy. And I found a way for him to stay in power. And, that's exactly what he did. I told he was going to do that, but I said, well, "What would, it, what would a, a, a man who wants to hold on to power do to, to circumvent the law?" And he did. He did exactly that. And General Orniero in this process, said, "Listen, I've been told by the by the administration to take my hands off. You know, to take my hands off." And we watched security degradation. We watched the Shiification of the Iraqi security forces. We watched competent U.S. trained commanders and military disintegrate. Uh, One of my my good friends and mentors, P.J. Dermer, uh, was was crucial to starting up the Sons of Iraq and and the Awakening. And he tells a story when he went to Jordan, where he he met with some Sunni tribal leaders that he got to do very dangerous things, stand up to al-Qaeda, to provide intelligence. Uh, Last time he met with them, they, one of the guys pulled out a bunch of US military coins out of his pockets, the ones we give our guys when we, we serve them, and threw them at his feet and said, these are all broken promises. You said you weren't going to leave us, you said you were going to make sure that we were part of the security apparatus, you promised us that Maliki wouldn't target us. What we did in abandoning the Sunnis in Iraq in 2009, 10, 11, and 12, when we left, was we left them open to attacks by their government open to reprisal attacks by al-Qaeda, open to attack by ISIS, shield militias, and Shia militias again. Because now, you know, I understand the role of uh, strategic communicators. I, that's my degree, I'm a strategic comms guy. And, you know, Commander Kirby retired, and now the State Department is a strategic comms guy. He said something the other day that that anybody who's ever worked Shia militias, anybody who's ever, ever held a security clearance, anybody who knows who Qasem Soleimani is, anybody who knows who Vassab al Haq is, or Kitab Hezbollah, or any of these other groups like Kitab, Imam or al he said, hey, the notion that these Shia militias are all affiliated with you, is just, it's ridiculous. That's not the case. The Hashul Shabi, the PMUs, the people's Volunt- volunteer uh, units are not affiliated with Iran. Okay, I'm standing here as a, as a former intelligence officer who worked this thing for, 20, for, for since 2007, but I've been working in the Middle East since, since 1986. Um, this is what you do to, to assuage Americans you call something something that was sold to the Americans. The People's Mobilization Units. Sounds democratic. Sounds like a bunch of volunteers, right? So you call it the Hosseini Shami, the people's formation, and you ignore who's in charge of it. So the man in charge of it is Hadi Alamiri, commander of the Border Corps, which is Iran's longest-standing proxy in Iraq that had a, a legitimate role in the Saddam years, to overthrow the Saddam government. But they literally rode in with us when we invaded Iraq in 2003 and we, we, they were the ones with the British accents, you know? they were the ones that uh, knew how to talk to Americans and I, I met with all of them and they were better than Jason Shalmendi, they were better <coughs> than these other groups because they wore suits and they were civil and they drank wine and they went to school in the states and they had people who went to school in the states and uh, except for Halei Labri, Halei Labri uh, has always been an Iranian agent, and he's he he. May, I don't know that he's an Iraqi nationalist. He doesn't say is, yes. He says his allegiance is to Kassim Soleimani and Khomeini. When you look at the barter corps uniform, there are two pictures on it. It's it's there are three: Kassim Soleimani, the leader of the Quds Force, Khomeini, and Khomeini. So there's three three leaders, all Iranian. There's no Sistani on it. There's no Iraqi flag. There's no Prime Minister Obama. There are no nationalists. So when you hear these comments that Shia militias are not affiliated with Iran, yet they're led by an Iranian proxy, and the deputy commander is even worse. The deputy commander, his name is uh, Mohendis. Abu Mehdi Al He is a designated terrorist responsible for uh, uh, having a hand in bombing of one of our U.S. embassies in Africa. His organization, Qatab, is, law, is a designated terrorist group. They're the ones that bombed uh, IEDs over walls and killed Americans and launched rockets and they're responsible for rumbling 80% of Ramadi. And this guy's a deputy commander of these Shia volunteers that are not affiliated with Iran. And he's one of Soleimani's closest confidants, Soleimani's go-to guy. And Soleimani, I'm sorry, uh, Mohandas, Honey, these guys are all, these are the, uh, well, I don't want to call them Kasich and Rubio, they're not doing very well. But these guys are, these guys are set to do very well in upcoming elections in 2018. They're set to win positions in the Iraqi government based on the, the public relations photos they've taken um, in Crete and these other places. So, none of this happens in a vacuum. Sunni military as in Iraq are watching this. They're saying, are you kidding me? These are the guys who are out here doing this. Um, when I visited uh, Kurdistan in November, uh, senior official commander on the front lines of ISIS said, we can defeat ISIS, no word about ISIS. Our problem is the SHI militias. Shia militias number 100,000, and the problem is they carry Iraqi flags. So their question was, when they encroach on Kurdish-held areas, if we shoot at them, we're traitors because we're shooting at forces carrying the, American, the Iraqi flag. What are we, what are we to do? And that is falling on deaf ears when we talk about strategy in Iraq with this administration, what these militias are becoming, the political gains they're set to have in 2018, and how they continue to push the Sunni population, not into the arms of ISIS, but into a tacit support role because they have no choice. They can't can't drive down the street, pick up a phone and say, hey, there's an ISIS commander at this house. Come get them because there's nobody there to come get them. There's nobody there to go after us. So Iran is fueling ISIS by co-opting. And I don't say co-opting, they have a like-minded uh, acquiescent government in Baghdad that is willing to alienate their Sunni population. If you look at Mosul, Mosul now we're going on two years of ISIS occupation with no force being built to retake it. I don't care that there's 7,000 Sunnis and a base south of Mosul being trained to take Mosul. It's a city of 1 million. There's 4,500 ISIS fighters there. And the force that can kill ISIS, they're already in Mosul. they are the 350,000 Sunni military-age males that haven't joined ISIS, <coughs> don't like ISIS, but are waiting. They're hedging their bets. These are chess players. If we kill it, we don't get anything for it. We need something to kill it, and all we need is a promise that we're part of Iraq's future. And they're not seeing it the words they hold to Iran. I was asked by a, a, a congressman's office today, what would be a strategy in Iraq to, to basically not have to go back. And I said, well, we have to hug Baghdad tighter than Iraq is hugging Baghdad, and we need to stay. We need, we need to have a construct. Kurds want a base, the Sunnis want a base, and Baghdad wants a base. And put three air bases in there, and you go with the, the South Korea, West Germany, Japan construct. Americans gotta have to get away with this notion that they you can't stay. You can. And eventually it'll become an assignment that Americans hopefully want to go to. People will love to go to Japan, people will love to go to Germany, people will love to go to South Korea. You know, twenty or thirty years people might be you know re enlisting to go to these places. I turned down two Japanese assignments, but I would go to Iraq if it was a re re-listing option. I'll definitely go, but I want to be in the embassy, it's a pretty nice gig, but um, we'll go to Syria real quick and then I'll take questions. So Syria, the biggest problem there, how does Iran feel ISIS in Syria? Well, if you simply look at the headlines, Russia's leaving Syria, they're not leaving Syria, there are no ground forces in Syria, they're simply sending some bombers back to Russia. Russia could simply remove all of its pilots and aircraft in two days, they could all go back to Russia. Conversely, they could put them all back in two days. They own three bases in Russia now. Their goal was never to get involved in a quag wire. Uh, their goal was never to fix uh, Syria with some comprehensive plan like you see the US do with Iran and Syria. Their goal was to keep Assad in power by hitting rebel positions and Jabal Nusra, because Jabal Nusra was in there working with the rebels. ISIS positions were rarely hit. Anytime any time the Russians actually hit, and rebel position, ISIS was actually able to make gains. So Russia was never in Syria to defeat ISIS. They're still there, and they needed the threat of ISIS to stay. Iran needs the threat of ISIS in Iraq and Syria to stay. There is no concerted effort to go into Iraq and Deir ez-Zor. We have enough. We want to do it, but I, I just want to tell you, as a guy who worked with the Peshmerga, I worked with the Kurds. Kurds are seven different groups of Kurds. The, the Barzani, PDK, those are the Kurds that we fought with. Those are the Kurds that we worked with. Those are the Kurds that kept our groups alive in Mosul and in Iraq and The PUK as well, Talibanis guys. The YPG is a temporary ally in the fight against ISIS and is a terrorist group. Uh, but they're, they're fighting ISIS. That's great. They're, they're socialists. They're secular and they want to fight ISIS, but they're still blowing up Turks and Ankara and other places. And we, we, we need temporary alliances. YPG, great job in Syria. We cannot be okay with everything else that's going on. So when politicians say we need to arm the Kurds and work with the Kurds, understand that absent tribal, political, or ethnic ties to an area, whatever force you're working with isn't going to go on either side. Uh, the Kurds aren't going to go to al Anbar. Uh, the Kurds weren't going to go to these other places. We got orders in 2005 to deploy a company to Anwar. My Peshmerga commander and his Peshmerga buddies were saying, uh, they're all great Americans. I mean, great, great Kurds, great people that kept us alive. They said, there's no way we're going to We have nothing to fight for. Them. That's not Kurds saying. Why would we risk lives? So they actually got sent to Baghdad. Just a quick little vignette. They got sent to Baghdad to be part of the, uh, the surge and they broker deals with Jason Lindy. They said, you don't mess with us, we'll mess with you. Much like Iran did in Al-Qaeda. You don't mess with us, we we'll won't mess with you. You can traverse our territories, you can do things, but don't don't attack any of our, our people or we'll attack you. So these these bargains are always taking place. And the US needs to be aware of temporary alliances, but also the strategic strategic goals of Russia, Iran in this area. ISIS is a, a, a temporary thing that will be replaced with ISIS 2.0, ISIS 3.0, ISIS 4.0. It's just the way it's going to be from now on. You have, you have these repressive governments that disenfranchise population centers, and they get a champion. And sometimes these champions form in, in, in groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And these champions are wearing uh, masks, smoke and mirrors, because soon the population that they're supposedly championing rebels against them. But they should get something for rebelling against them, meaning they should win back the trust of their government. They should win back U.S. support. They should win back the international community support. How would you feel being a Sunni military rebel in Syria and 400,000 deaths not be good enough for the international community to do so? And then Baghdad thinking, wow, if they're not going to do anything in Syria, they have killed kill 400,000 other people and use chemical weapons. What do we have a license to do? And right now our adversaries, to include ISIS and these other groups, believe they have nine months, ten months to do whatever they want. Because this administration, I had a sobering conversation with with a guy I really respected, who I thought had influence within the administration. And he told me, listen, Mike, they have a slow burn strategy a slow fuse strategy. They, they're not going to do anything, they just want to get out of the office and focus on these other things. And one of those things was the Iran deal. The Iran deal kept us out in power. You saw our position change. We thought we could compartmentalize the nuclear deal with Iran. Iran made it about everything. They made it about not doing anything about Assad. They made it about getting out of Iraq. They made it about not building a Sunni force. They made it about um, releasing uh, or taking sanctions off of people that, that shouldn't even have sanctions off. But one of the most brilliant things Iran did, and this is a chess. I don't know if you know who Zanjani is. Zanjani is the Iranian Trump for all purposes. A billionaire who was tasked by the, the Revolutionary Guard to bypass U.S. sanctions and sell Iranian oil. He did this, and they somehow, in that last week in Vienna when we were trying to secure the Iran deal and they kept bringing up these lists of people, and our, our people said, hey, can, can you guys take these guys on sanctions? Yeah, yeah sure, we'll get to it. And they put it over here. Annex 2 was never vetted by the intelligence community because the intelligence community never would have allowed Qasem Soleimani, SEPA Bank, Mayhan Airlines, and these other groups to receive sanctions relief. But on that list was on Zanjani was recently sentenced to death by the Iranian regime. They asked for sanctions relief only so they could try him for breaking the law that they insisted he break, to seize his assets. I mean, that's, that's how brilliant. Unfreeze his assets, we'll sentence him to death, and then we get to seize his assets. And the best part of that message is, is when you, if anybody's writing about this, is to tell everybody on Annex 2, hey guys. <laughs> You have any assets? We just unfroze them. You might be next. Yeah, <laughs> it might be time to come over to McLean, Virginia, and make some friends. <laughs> so these things, these things happen. We, we just saw. I, I worked the Osama bin Laden sensitive Side exploitation of documents for SINCOM. and we saw enough. And you just saw the recent release of some letters that were Osama bin Laden was chastising one of his tenants. For threatening to attack Iran, and he told them this. Iran is one of our main uh, life support systems here. And they allow travel, they allow funds, they allow arms to come through Iran to get to us in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So we've seen Iran work with groups like Al Qaeda. We've seen the reports about Assad buying oil from ISIS. We've seen these things. We know Iran's not in Syria to defeat ISIS. We know Iran's not in Iraq to defeat ISIS. They will hit ISIS in areas strategic to them, along the sectarian fault lines in Iraq, where there's key infrastructure, where there are areas that are important to what Iran wants. And I, that's why I don't think you're going to see a force being built to retake Mosul. And you can't level Mosul like you do a Iraq. So I hope, I hope this kind of put all the dots together there on how this U.S. tilt towards Iran is actually. Helping ISIS recruit foreign fighters because they're able to tell Sunnis that Iran is tacitly, our U.S. is tacitly supporting Iran and therefore supporting Assad. Because our position has changed. In 2012, we had a red line. In 2013, the Assad replacement was part of our strategy. And now we have we we literally have the same position that Iran and Russia have now on Assad being able to stay through elections where the voters are deemed legitimate by Assad's government, And it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it shouldn't be, be happening. If we were paying attention to it, and everybody else was paying attention to it, we were able to do something. And those of you who in the military before, um, I always knew as a junior officer and a junior NCO that I had about two minutes to convince my boss I was right about something. So I had to make sure everything I had was, were, everything I said was fact-based. And I was able to get arguments in front of people in two minutes. I had bullets said, sir, this is what's going on. Here's the evidence. Here's what's going on. I did a Capitol Hill push ahead of the Iran deal. And I had never been in a situation where I presented a decision-maker with facts and had them vote, you know, you know along political lines. Mm. And that was uh, eye-opening for me. And uh, I will name names in the future. <laughs> but but anyway, we're, we're continuing to fight now with the Hudson Institute, I read about ISIS, I read about Iran, and uh, our group Veterans Against Iran deal, uh, we're now going to be Veterans National Security Initiative. So we can talk about a lot of things. And our charter is basically, it's a clear commander's intent, or a clear intent of the organization to ensure no commander in chief, regardless of party, ever politicizes intelligence or downplays threats to America and its allies. If that happens, we'll, we'll, we'll say something, whether it be an ad, an op-ed, or a panel, uh, because we have the experts. Uh, people in this organization are former DIA, CIA, NSA, and special operators and experts in, across the Uniformed Services. We even have foreign officers as well that know these enemies. And uh, I, I love the charge. I'm excited to, to be part of it. Thanks for your
0: attention. Thanks. As an observer, and you saw these events unfolding on the ground, when was the first moment when you, it came into your mind that we were going to tilt toward you line? When did you first realize
1: that that might be an emerging
0: strategic and tactical approach?
1: Um, when we released with Kate Ghazali. Guys that would have never been released. Um, what time frame was that? 2009 was Leith Ghazali. 2010 was Case Ghazali. He's now a leader of A.H. Assault al He's leading al-Shabi forces on the battlefield. He's... Um, it's intriguing because
0: uh, in June of 09 is when Obama team his New Beginning speech at Al-Azhar. And I think most people assume he was speaking to the Sunni world. Right. And maybe he wasn't just speaking to the Sunni world. And he was saying, are you beginning with the Shia world too? Because that's exactly the same time frame when these things the I, I I think that was more
1: of a you wanted already got their message. Um, I think that was a more of a message towards the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups. But he but is listening as well. Iran has worked with Sunni groups as well, with the Muslim Brotherhood as well. Conservative efforts. So, yeah, Jeff The Washington
0: Times. Uh, excellent. Uh, should you, uh, first of all, I'd like to mention a story of someone who a couple of days ago said, you know, I think a Kurdish member of parliament, uh, called for an impeachment proceeding against uh, Defense Minister Fawaz al Yes. He said uh, the audit shows that 103 billion dollars is missing from the defense budget, mm-hmm. and uh, he says, "Well, you know, money's been did by the arms, moved by." But uh, the main question I have is: uh, How many troops will be required to retake Mosul? And, to your knowledge, how many ISIS fighters are in city? <laughs> and how long, at minimum,
1: will it take to recover Mosul? Oh, okay, so I was in Mosul in 2005, 2006. And you could argue that Mosul was never taken from the insurgency. We simply pacified the insurgency by allowing it space. And I talked to other commanders in the area. Uh, you know, Petraeus was there in 2004, 2005, and every time we arrested somebody who was bad, they had a letter that said "friend friend of General Petraeus they're temporary friends, you know. The thing about the thing about the way we conduct the war is we go in, and then a brand new set of Americans go in, and the relationships have to start all over. They don't carry carry on. That's why when the Marine Corps went into a lot war, they brought in the two company commanders who were going to be there over the next 14 months. They went in together. So this is John. This is Mike. He'll be here for seven months, and then Mike's going to take over. Good to meet you. These are all the relationships you need to maintain. And then when they trade it off, they maintain these relationships and Anwar got by and the awakening began in Anwar. To to the question about Mosul, there's 4,500 reluctant ISIS fighters that don't want to be in Mosul in Mosul. ISIS actually bought into the fact that we were going to conduct an operation last spring and moved out the high-value targets to Syria when it was a more permissive environment. When Syria became a less permissive environment, it went back to Mosul knowing that we weren't going to do anything. Um, when the Iraqi government said that there was going to be a Mosul offensive, we're now saying it's going to be in May. Prior to that, you saw the dismantling of infrastructure and the movement of uh, satellite equipment and oil refinery equipment to Syria. And the, the movement of key leaders as well. I was on the front lines of ISIS in Western, I'm correct, in eastern Mosul in November and they had 100 guys in the place we were looking at. And they weren't there in the daytime, they busted them in at night, they stayed overnight and they picked them up in the morning and moved out. And they weren't flying flags and they really didn't look like they wanted to be there, there was no, people, no population there anymore. Uh, they were pretty much just doing a routine kind of thing. Uh, salaries have dropped in of the price of a, of a salary for an ISIS fighter a year ago it was $500 a month, a car and a cell phone paid on time. Now it's fifty dollars a month and they're three months behind. There is there are so many opportunities to exploit ISIS in in, in in Mosul. They are the majority of the fighters there are foreign fighters. The mayor of Mosul is a Frenchman mm-hmm. and who's very benevolent apparently. Uh, he doesn't he gets to be good cop. Bad cops do other things. But um, there's 4,500 guys in Mosul that as soon as an operation begins, it will do down to about 1,500 to 2,000. There'll be an exit, a purge, a, a blending into the population based on the seriousness of the effort. If it's a heavy-handed tactic by Shia militias and artillery, you're looking at something much different. You're looking at Sunnis willing to protect, willing to fight with, willing to take up arms, to, to fight not because they joined ISIS but because they're proud Mosulovs proud of their city. Uh, They'll do that. The best way to take Mosul, and you can do it now with Shia militias in Peshmerga. You secure the air base, Diamondback Meraz, Meraz Airfield, and you start conducting intelligence-based attacks from that base, enough to damage the brand. ISIS is all about brand. The the only thing you really need to do in Mosul is is to basically demonstrate a capability to attack ISIS from Mosul and a protected base they can't get to. It, it hurts the brand. And then what you do from there, what you secure Diamondback Meraz, you start a recruiting drive. You say, anybody who is a former Iraqi military officer, NCO, ISOF, come to Diamondback Meraz, you're going to get it. i talked to State Department about this. If you deploy one division of American soldiers, it's, it's a lot of if you simply pay back the 30000 and encouraged purged by Maliki, back pay for six years and back promotion, it's literally, um, I think it was $36 million to do that. And you could do it at $6 million a year. And if you look at the, the amount of money we're giving, we give Afghanistan $4 billion a year. And you could literally bring them back in with back pay and back promotion and give them careers because we go with these temporary contracts. No Sunni in Iraq wants a temporary contract anymore. They want a military career. So, Mosul, you go in, you start bringing these guys in, you make them sources, you drop leaflets, say, you know, do information operations, say thanks for that capture of that high value target last night. Uh, Remember when Abu Sayyaf was captured by, or killed by American special operators in Syria? and his wives who were really the kid, no, not no, what we call it? Uh, Audienkline. So he was killed and she was, she was captured. Within four hours, we told the world that we had captured this guy. The intelligence community lost six months of, of collection capability because every ISIS fighter threw away a cell phone and relocated. So this last guy that we, we got at we don't know who he is. Nobody mentioned his name, his role in ISIS, who just said a senior ISIS commander was captured. And what that does, and this is what would help in Mosul, you say these things, you capture somebody, the network lights up, who's captured? that? Who's, who's missing? And then you collect, and then you, you're able to, you get pinpoint grid coordinates where these guys are and conduct intelligence, you know, action, or actual intelligence raids. do these things. Ramadi was rushed. Ramadi never needed to be rushed. It was a, we will clear Ramadi by the end of the year. And so they leveled it. Ramadi is 80% destroyed. They destroyed a city of 50,000 Iraqis, Sunni Iraqis, to kill 1,000 ISIS fighters. They didn't kill the ISIS fighters, the ISIS fighters fled. And they leveled the city. We cannot level Mosul and call it success. The last time Americans did that level of the city was, uh, no, it was uh, Fallujah. Prior to that, it was Vietnam. <laughs> and no, we don't do that, that's not counterinsurgency operations. Counterinsurgency is winning the hearts and minds of the local population, and having that population, once the enemy is, is killed, be able to go back to their home, their business, their store, and reopen it that day, <laughs> not to have to rebuild something that was destroyed. So that that's what I would say to, to Mosul, you just have to start once you start it, you can be successful. You don't have to end it quickly. You simply start it and you show that it's a, you're going to have a recruiting drive, you're going to be able to do action, uh, actual intelligence raids, on high value targets, and you're going to open the space for reconciliation with their government. That's, that's, that's what we did during the search. But that's what worked. Yes?
0: There's been a lot in the news about the politicization of intelligence on ISIS and on the fact that it was being rewritten or censored in a number of ways. Could you address that? But even even more, can you address what an incoming administration that might not want to perpetuate that, what are they going to have to do organizationally to to essentially reform or to create and you know, to recreate right. the intelligence community where it's been so damaged? Mm-hmm. The,
1: Thank you for asking that. I used to give a lecture at the National Defense University on analysis, paralysis by analysis. And basically what you have now in the intelligence community, and I've talked to experts. So who here is the ISIS expert? And somebody raised their hand. who here is the Al-Qaeda expert? And I said, okay, tell me how to defeat them. You you can't. You can't. They're a formidable terrorist army that just cannot be defeated they subscribe to the strictest form of Islam, they're Saddam's former special operators and intelligence officers, and they're the cream of the crop. And uh, they're not. There are so many ways to, to exploit these guys. So so one of the problems, the discrepancy between what CENCOM was saying at the highest level and what their analysts was, were saying, is there was a gap to be filled. I used to work at CENCOM, I know the, the Iraq team. and. They were, ISIS is a form of a terrorist army that cannot be stopped. There is an information operations strategy. Unfortunately, the administration conflates information operations with realities on the ground. You can tell ISIS it sucks, it's losing, it's not good, but you shouldn't be telling your intelligence community that. You should be asking your intelligence community to tell me how to defeat them. And when somebody says you can't, you should replace that guy on the spot. One of the things uh, I, I love. Listen, I was never a general, never a colonel. I was a captain and I was a sergeant. And I was always able to sit there I and I learned early on that if you have something to say, say it. You can say it one time and then you'll be told to shut up and you shut up. Um, look for that guy in the room. Look for the guy who who has a dissenting view. One of the biggest problems in the intelligence community is we do consensus analysis. So people will say, you know, ISIS, ISIS is dying, Al Qaeda is dying, and the, 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 leader, the leader needs to say, Who disagrees with us? And that question is not being asked by enough leaders. And there needs to be a, a box, we used to call it the shadow box or the gray box, where you'd have the dissenting opinion in that box where somebody didn't agree with it. And you need to, to be able to do that. One of the problems with CENCOM, I know, I know General Grove, I know, I know Reichman, I know the people in charge of the J2 day. I also know General General Austin because we used to jump out of planes together. And you have a decision maker who wants to kick doors down and kill bad guys. You have an intelligence cell that says ISIS cannot be defeated. And you have a J2 that says, who's going to fill this intelligence gap? We have this huge intelligence gap because we don't have enough collectors on the ground to find out enough about ISIS. We don't have enough assets on the ground to recruit sources. We're fighting this information operations campaign that hurts ISIS fighter from, When you say ISIS isn't doing well. But then you have you have these descriptions. So I, I, think, I think as much as people want to say that it was nefarious, that the information was politicized to make it sound better, I really think they were trying to mend the gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, some, in some cases, any, anywhere where it's it, it's intentional politicization of, of intelligence for to, to serve purposes like Benghazi or like the Iranian nuclear deal and what coup Force activities, you need to call it out. But I, the next administration needs to uh, just have a, a surge of former military into the intelligence community uh, with, with experience. Um, I was talking to a, uh, a guy, um, a producer at Fox News, and said, what can we do differently? I said, we we'll stop talking to generals. Stop asking generals what they think of us, because remember, generals are consumers of intelligence. Generals aren't the ones that were out there going and getting it. Talk to people that were going and getting it. So a decision maker needs to go into a room of intelligence analysts and look. So if I would, in this room right here, we were doing consent, we were doing this, I would ask you, what you thought about ISIS? Because you, you pick on a guy that's, that acts like he, he's frustrated. Not that you're frustrated, but, you know... Oh, actually. <laughs> yeah, you, you do, and that's what I would say. I hope that answers a little bit. Yes, sir? The Defense Minister of
0: Israel was quoted in today's Washington Times as saying that Iraq can never be put back together, that it's going to have to be split up into sects
1: by region. Can you address that? Um, Vice President Biden's position uh, this is the, the only time an America was ever to get all Iraqis to agree against his position. <laughs> when he said that Iraq should be divided into three, um, I use the analogy of an iPad, you drop an iPad on the floor, it doesn't work anymore, it's in three pieces. The problem with Iraq is everybody wants the heart, everybody wants the kidneys, and everybody wants the brain. You can't divide any of those things. The kidneys, I guess. But, (laughs) Mm -hmm. anyway, because she was going to
2: say that. (laughs) Yes, sir. Yeah, Yeah. I'd like to address the question about ISIS. (coughs) You You don't seem to have a tremendously high opinion of them, but are you concerned that given the weakness of the United States and our, by your thesis, which I find fascinating and persuasive, enabling ISIS through? Iran, and the weak, the weakening position of, let's say, the Saudis and other countries that have willyots of the ISIS present, especially Libya with they're present and active. Yes. Are you concerned that you might actually see not ISIL or ISIS, but an Islamic state, a real Islamic state, emerge out of our weakness and the
1: weakness of Sunni Islam? The- <coughs> The thing about ISIS, is, ISIS made one crucial mistake when they went into Iraq, and Osama bin Laden was a very patient guy. If you look at the Osama bin Laden, uh, the, the, the documents released, he, he warned against establishing an Islamic state until you were able to pay everybody a salary, feed yeah. everyone. He, he said he wouldn't see it in his lifetime. Exactly. Like that, assume, yeah. And then the one thing he left out was to defend against U.S. airstrikes. Um, ISIS has no capability to defend against our our premier aircraft uh, or the world's aircraft. The next ISIS will, the next ISIS will learn that it needs the ability to shoot down American aircraft. So it'll probably be the seizure of, of a more capable military's air defense assets. Uh, you saw the seizure of uh, Syrian air defense assets, but they use it in a direct fire mode and use all the ammunition because they weren't patient. The thing about ISIS and what I think about ISIS. I'm uh, thinking of it
2: as much politically as economically and militarily. Right. And the political element
1: I think is as important as any of the others. The, the the Islamic State works if it's something like Turkey or something like what um Morse tried to do in Egypt if it wasn't replaced. Does not work with um, I mean, you can see that the Saudi model is working, the Iranian model of the Islamic State is working. They both have Sharia law. They both behead. But neither of them can claim a caliphate. No, no, no. And that is significant, isn't it? But the caliphate demands that those other countries those other governments submit. And indeed, under Islam, they should. But the thing about ISIS, if you simply look at Jabal al-Isra in Syria, you have an al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria that has told ISIS No. We're more capable than you. We're more disciplined than you. Uh, We've actually done more than you have, and you've simply exploited (coughs) ungoverned spaces and called it a a caliphate. If the caliphate was in Washington, D.C., it would be 395, and then it would go down to 95. And it would just simply be a little bit of the exits, because that's what ISIS-controlled territory is. It's not a whole city, with the exception of Mosul, but if you look at these other areas, it, it's like that. It's simply just a stretch of highway where it connects. So the thing is, I believe that, that ISIS-like entities will try to do this again. They will learn from ISIS. They may be the sons of ISIS or a, an offshoot of ISIS, but they will go to underground spaces. What you're trying to see now is ISIS is doing this, uh, this shift. Let's establish the California Libya because it's getting too hard to do it in Iraq, it's getting too hard to do it in Syria. They're already trying to go somewhere else to establish it to compensate for lost territory, which is actually um, takes away from their argument that they're, they are a caliphate. But isn't there a
2: sufficient resonance between ISIS and, let's say, the uh, folks in Saudi Arabia, in the Wahhabis, that there could be a real? problem with a collapse or a radical change in Saudi Arabia, which is entirely possible. There is.
1: And thank God for for guilt, thank God for greed, thank God for competition, thank God for for all of these things that pious men struggle with every day to control because that is dominant in ISIS. They have four intelligence services. Three of them are supposed to look at external threats, one's supposed to look at internal threats. All four are looking internally because the organization is so paranoid. I met with uh, 12 generals that used to be in, in the Baptist Sudan military on a Jordan in November. And they asked me, why the hell are we meeting with you? And I said, I don't know what you guys wanted me the meeting. Um, <laughs> But I used to be uh, an intelligence advisor to General Petraeus. And I used to talk to one of their generals, and I said, uh, do you know who General Naja Malajewi is? And they said, yes. And I said, well, Mike says hi. That's all I had to say and they sat down and we talked and I asked them were you guys ever part of ISIS? They are like no, 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 no. Are you part of ISIS now? No. So the are you part of ISIS now was was a definite no. Were you ever part of ISIS or did you ever work with ISIS? There was a, yeah. See, the thing about the argument that uh, ISIS is comprised of the best of the best, the king of the crop of Saddam's former security and intelligence apparatus, is like saying that General McChrystal, General Flynn, General Petraeus, General Keene are all now Branch Davidians that are being this ISIS, and they all now are going down this path that they can't be shaken from. It, it doesn't make sense. So they were part of it. Well, oh, I'm sorry about that. They, they were part of it, but they, they, the, the apocalyptic wing has taken over ISIS. That the big crowd to taken Tariq over ISIS. The yeah. Tariq, so. With the downing of the Russian aircraft, with the Paris attacks, pragmatic Baathists have started exiting ISIS over the last year and a half because ISIS is bringing too many enemies to the battlefield. Mm-hmm. If I could intervene with, with, to, to see if there could
0: possibly be a short answer to this one. Sure. Just as you have pointed out, the strategic realignment for Iran by the United States is. Been a great recruitment tool for ISIS. Should the next administration do so, what would be the most convincing thing they
1: could do to show that that realignment is now going to be changed? The first thing the president should do and I, and is, is tear terror- up the Iran deal with Iran, put sanctions back on Iran for ballistic missile testing, for supporting terrorism, for using banks to support terrorism, for funding. Hezbollah, Qatar Hezbollah, Assam Haq. Those are all things the administration is considering now. The administration would actually make the argument that we already have sanctions on Iran for all of these things. The problem is they're not enforcing it. They're not freezing those assets that are allowing Iran to prop up Assad, and they're not freezing those assets that are allowing Iran to secure deals with Russia in the future, and not freezing those assets that change hands between China, Russia, and Iran. We have not released the U.S. banking system to. European businesses to do uh, business with Iran, and Zarif is calling that a violation of the Iran deal. And we're not doing that because we designated businesses with an IRGC affiliation as a as a violation. So I know it's not a short answer. Uh, the, thing, the thing the next president needs to do in order to show the Sunnis of the northern Middle East and our traditional allies is put sanctions on Iran for violations, the missile violations, continuing to support terrorism. And then actually set up no-fly zones, increase the U.S. military and advisory role in both Iraq and Syria. You have—I um, talked to European uh, European national security people all the time that, that talk about how to defeat ISIS. And they're willing to commit air for airstrikes to defeat ISIS, but they're not willing to commit ground force. Yet in each one of these countries, they have Syrian refugees that are in their country. I would make a call out to Syrian refugees. How many of you want to go back to your country, and how many of you want to be supported by us? We'll train you to be collectors, intelligence operatives, and we'll train you to be close uh, quarter com- counterterrorism forces to go back and secure your country. Mm-hmm. And in exchange, if you want a visa or something like that, we'll do that after this is already taken care of. So the ground force Europe's looking for is already in their country. They're just called Syrian refugees. Mm-hmm and you should start recruiting those Sunni military agents. Is anybody trying to do that? No, I think it's a great idea, but nobody's trying to do it. Keep talking about it. Can you
0: join me in thanking Mr.